Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you an interview with Jonah Kessel, the director of cinematography and a visual journalist for The New York Times. Before I say a little bit about Jonah, I want to highlight how he has revolutionized the podcast. We both recorded on our own ends and then put it together later, rather than just use the audio I record in Skype like usual. I'd experimented with this in episodes one through three, but given up on it because I thought it was a lot of extra work. Well, with some prodding from Jonah, who is obviously way into multimedia, I gave it another go and figured out a way to do it that doesn't take much more time. I'll try to use this method more in the future, so the sound should improve going forward. One more show note is I'm going to start putting people's job title or other things in the podcast episode titles when it seems more relevant. I don't think the show benefits from saying Jonah is in New York for the New York Times. This isn't a Frank Sinatra song. So I'll probably be more flexible on the titling going forward. So on to Jonah. I met Jonah in Beijing in the early 2010s when we were both working there as journalists. This interview has now kind of changed my perspective on that time as actually a unique era in China and in my life. Looking back, we were part of a bona fide journalist scene. There was tons of work. You could get away with being in China on a less than legit visa. And it was a hell of a lot of fun for dozens, if not hundreds of journalists. People knew each other, helped each other, and well, had decadent meals and partied. We didn't realize how good we had it back then. Xi Jinping came along and basically squashed it all. You used to be able to move to China on a lark and give it a go as a journalist, but I'm not sure I'd recommend trying that in China now. I kind of knew this, but this interview drove this home. I wonder where that place is today if you're a young, hungry journalist looking to move abroad. I'm genuinely curious to know, so if you have any thoughts, email me at foreignpod at gmail.com or get at me on Twitter. Now for the interview itself. As it turns out, there's a whole lot of things I didn't know about Jonah. It definitely wasn't keeping on the straight and narrow that got him to the New York Times. He had a bit of an unorthodox path into journalism. He attended, by my count, at least four universities, worked at a newspaper in Lake Tahoe, was a newspaper consultant in Algeria, and redesigned the China Daily all before I met him. The key was that he took photos all along the way, even when it wasn't quite clear what to do with them. Specific models of camera changed his life not once, but twice. All of this wandering and his wide-ranging experience, I think, informs his work, which back in Beijing and now, I think is really on another level than all the other video journalists out there. He's a truly impressive thinker about visuals, how people respond to them, and finding creative approaches to change how people respond. The story he chooses to share about photographing things outside the visible light spectrum is definitely a good example of his creative thinking. He mentions it was nominated for an Emmy, and I said I would tell you the results in the intro, so unfortunately I have to say he did not win. But he has at least one Pulitzer that I know of and reams of other awards, so he's not hurting for laudits. It was difficult to contain our sprawling conversation into a single episode. So this episode follows a more traditional format, learning the highlights of his life and career so far. And then I have broken out a half an hour in extras that is more focused on his current work at the New York Times. If you notice some of the questions I normally ask are missing from this episode, you'll probably find them in that bonus material. Look for that extra content to drop tomorrow on Monday in the podcast feed. And now, without further ado, here's my interview with Jonah Kessel, Director of Cinematography for The New York Times. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jonah. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. Happy to talk. So to warm up a little bit, if you could just set the scene for me and our listeners, 
let me know where you are, both physical space around you, geographically, what time it is, and just a little bit about what your past week of work has been like. Okay. I am in the attic of a 120-year-old house in Maplewood, New Jersey. We are about 30 minutes outside of the city. Fortunately, I had a premonition that there would be a pandemic and New York City would be a horrible place to live about (laughs) a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now. And we bought this old house because we wanted more space. And I've lived in a variety of crowded cities in this world. And New York is actually a tough one, unless you're very wealthy. And I'm a journalist. So ergo, I'm not very wealthy. But out here we have space. I'm in an attic. And if I look back along the last week, this attic is my office now. It was before the pandemic, but it wasn't used that much. And now I feel like I live in this room. But the last week has been tremendously busy. If I click over to my Google calendar of the week and see these blocks of meetings I have, there is almost no spare time. Like I just went from 8 a.m. Monday and now it's 5.30 on a Thursday night without almost having time to eat, or at least eat away from my desk, I should say. So it's been a very busy week. Cool. So with that out of the way, it's probably time to get into the interview proper. Have you listened to any episodes before? Just so I know whether you... Yeah, I have. And just a little bit of feedback. So I knew about the podcast and I'd listened to a little bit of Kits a while back, but then when you reached out, I was like, oh yeah. And I went back and so I listened to Kits and then I listened to Megas and I listened to Jonathan Watts and I've really enjoyed it. And it's not that I didn't think I would, but there's something about it that I found, <laughs> I found super like, I've been listening to it in the morning this week when I get up and I've just found it really fun and like kind of relaxing somehow. I don't know why, but it, it's been, it's been nice. It's been really great to hear it. Oh, that's great. That's great. I thought you were going to say something about the sound quality. <laughs> which, it all sucks now. Uh, which, yeah, kits, there's like a dog barking in the background like the entire time, if memory serves. Maybe not the entire time, but... Uh, Have you been to Eastern Europe? <laughs> <laughs> Dogs are barking constantly. It did give a sense of place, that's for sure. So let's just roll back the clock. Tell me where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, what the deal was with your family and maybe a bit about your early school years and when you started to show an interest in journalism. Sure. So I was born in Vermont, in northern Vermont, uh, just outside Burlington. It is a fairly rural place. The town I grew up in is called Shelburne. I think at the time when I was growing up, there's about 5,000 people in it. This is not a populous place and it's not a very diverse place, Vermont, but it is a beautiful and wonderful place to grow up. I think I definitely fit the model of somebody who didn't understand how lucky they were until much later in life. My parents were from Boston and, and, you know, like a lot of people of their generation, they wanted to get out of the city and came to Vermont. You know, there's like this folksy, hippie type of exodus from the cities in the 70s. So I was born in 1980 in Vermont, though, and I would describe my childhood as being fairly idyllic. I have two brothers and we live on a few acres of forest There wasn't many neighbors. My high school was in a cow field. Um, (laughs) For better or worse, there was not much to do. We spent a lot of time outdoors. We spent a lot of time hiking and skiing. And my dad's a teacher. My mom was in sales. Or I should say my dad was a professor. And so, you know, I grew up in a middle-class lifestyle in Vermont, which now that I've had this amazing opportunity to travel so much around the world... I view as a fairly unique place. 
in a fairly special place. If I could live there now, I certainly would. So I left Vermont in 1999, and I haven't really been back to live there since then, but I still consider Mm -hmm. myself a Vermonter. I still identify as a Vermonter. And I don't know if that's because I spent so much time abroad, and I've lived in a lot of cities and places. I've lived in Burlington, Vermont. I've lived in New Orleans, Louisiana. I've lived in Portland, Oregon. I've lived in Maui, Hawaii. I've lived at Lake Tahoe in California. I've lived in New Zealand. I've lived in Australia. I've lived in Algeria. I've lived in Beijing. I've lived in Hong Kong. I lived in New York, and now I'm living in New Jersey. (laughs) I think I I hit all of them, which is like a lot of places for somebody who's 40 years old. Like, something's up there. (laughs) So in that period of living in those places, I've traveled all over Asia to almost every country in Asia. Not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm missing some places. I'm missing Sri Lanka. Oh, and Papua New Guinea. I've never been to PNG. I've never been to Sri Lanka. But I've been all over Asia, and I've been all over Europe, and, you know, just all over the world, and... Oh, I forgot to mention Australia. I lived in Australia. But I view Vermont as like a very unique place in the world and a special place. So maybe that's why I continue to identify as a Vermonter. Makes sense. So I guess back to growing up, I had a really early interest in journalism, but I didn't know it like at all. Like I did my middle school yearbook. I did my high school yearbook and I was the editor of both of them. And I loved it, by the way. Like it was like, especially in high school, it was a class you took, but it was like, it was more than a class. It was something we like, we like hung out in the yearbook room after school and stuff. And it was like a social thing too. It wasn't necessarily like the cool thing to do, I don't think, but my group of friends loved it. So I did it when I was really young and I had no idea that that was journalism. I was doing it because it was fun. I was doing it because I loved it. And then when I left high school, I went to college for a few years in New Orleans at Tulane University. And at that point I was studying ethnomusicology <laughs> and um, yeah, it's pretty different. But I mean, actually, when I say studying, that's a very liberal use of the term. I was not doing much studying at all. And so I lived in New Orleans for a couple of years. But if you think about, oh, I don't know how much you know about this school, but it's like you take a bunch of 18-year-old kids from around the country who can't drink legally where they're from, and you put them in New Orleans where they could kind of drink legally. It's a little gray, but they could consume alcohol. They couldn't buy it legally, but they could consume it legally. And it was just like a wild party. It was so different from Vermont. I think that was the intent actually, is I wanted to get as far away as possible and I wanted to go do something super exciting. And so I go to New Orleans and it was just like mind blowing. You know, I was seeing shows every night. I think attendance, if my memory serves me right, was not required. Like you had to show up to the midterm in the final, but you didn't have to go to class if you didn't want And so I didn't go to class much and I didn't study much. I was partying all the time and I was seeing a lot of music. And eventually, like many other Tulane students, that put me in a place of needing to leave. Like I was being very unhealthy, essentially consuming a a ton of drugs and a ton of alcohol. I mean, having the time of my life, but it wasn't healthy and it wasn't positive. And so I left after a year and a half. And I think this is like the beginning of my life, if I really think about it, because I was out of school. I must have been like 19 at the time. And somehow I got this camera. It was a digital elf. I know the guy who I got it from. It was like one of the first digital cameras. I think it was like a 1.4 megapixel digital camera. I had previous in life and yearbooks at all these schools done stuff, but I got this little camera and I didn't have anything to do. And I was like... I want to see the country. I want to travel. And I also wanted to get away from New Orleans because I'd kind of fallen into a bad scene. And so I got into the car with a buddy of mine 
and we started driving around the country and I had this little camera and I started taking pictures of everything I saw and was doing. And, you know, at that point, it wasn't like I was doing it because I had no notion that it could be a career. At that point in life, I wasn't even thinking of careers. I probably, I was like thinking much more short term, but I was taking pictures of everything. And I remember I spent a lot of time in Georgia and in Florida, and then we drove across Texas and we spent a lot of time in New Mexico and then a lot of time in Colorado. And then eventually I landed in Oregon, I think mostly because we ran out of money and we needed to work. And so this kind of on the road style trip began leaving school in New Orleans, which led to me traveling for about three years domestically. And through that period of time, I was just taking pictures and I was doing a lot of like digital art, taking these pictures and seeing what I could do with them in Photoshop. And it was like kind of the roots of this curiosity of photographing the world and having this freedom to be like, oh, wow, I can just go places and take pictures. And at the same time, I was having this like a bit of a counterculture moment in my life. Like we were in Portland and we'd been there for about a year and it was just raining all the time. And we were like, we should go someplace where it doesn't rain. This sucks. And we were like, <laughs> where, where, where should we go? We're all, we've already gone from, you know, from the East coast, from Vermont all the way to the West to, I was with a buddy from mine from Vermont and we'd already gotten to like the far West side. And I was like, let's keep going West. And so we went to Hawaii and we showed up in Hawaii with bikes and pioneers and that little camera. Oh, and actually, no, at that point I got like a slightly better small digital camera. It's like the first Canon Rebel. But this counterculture thing I referenced was like, I was really kind of annoyed with the media environment. I didn't want to see the news. I was like kind of against it. I remember going to Hawaii and being on the bikes. We were biking around and camping a lot. And my general attitude was like, I want nothing to do with the outside world. I want to take cool pictures. I want to travel and that's it. And this is where it gets a little bit funny because after about a year of that in Hawaii... I went to journalism school. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, that's a pretty big 180. And it, it wasn't like I had an epiphany, but like I had been resisting it. But at the same time, I'd been enjoying photography so much that I was like, how do I get paid to do this? And I tried. Right. I, I, I did try <laughs> to get paid to do it without a background and if, I guess any type of formal education in it. And I remember having a conversation with my dad and I can kind of think about this now a little bit easier, but if you have a kid you know, who's, I was probably 21 or 22 at the time, not in college, didn't finish college. You know, you want what's best for your kids. You're trying to give them good advice. And he was like, why don't you go to journalism school? <laughs> you know? And it had been something I'd never considered. And I knew I wanted to go back to school. I knew I should finish my degree, maybe start and finish a degree or restart. Right. But, but so my yeah. dad has this suggestion. He's like, why don't you go to journalism school? You like taking pictures a lot. And for the first time in probably a long time, I decided to take his advice because <laughs> clearly his advice was not to go roam around the country aimlessly taking pictures of whatever you felt like. That was not his advice at the time. Yeah. Um, were they concerned with your oh, life at that point? Oh, totally. Yeah, they were very concerned. And, you know, I had probably damaged our relationship a little bit, just like any 19-year-old kind of control kid would do. Nothing, nothing crazy. But so, and my dad was a professor. And I had acquired quite a bit of debt from my first run at university, but because he's a professor at a college, I could go to that college for free and they had a journalism department. So I moved back to Vermont and started J school. And at that point I'd been traveling for like three years domestically. And so I was quite a bit older than all of the other students. 
I was kind of on my own at that point. My parents weren't supporting me. So I was going to school during the day and I was working at night. <laughs> so I was like working in restaurants and I had been working in restaurants previously too in Hawaii and in Oregon. So I wasn't like a traditional student. I wasn't living on campus. I was maintaining a job at a restaurant, going to school, and then I was shooting for the school newspaper, which was essentially a full-time job in its own. I took it kind of seriously, but that led to great things. I guess I should say that like, there's a trend here. I did that for about a year, and then I got super antsy. I got tired of being in the same place, and I was like, how do I get out of here? And so I dropped out of school and enrolled in a different school <laughs> in New Zealand. And then I did that for a year. And then I dropped out of that school and went to a school in Australia. And then it'd been like, okay, you've been to four schools now. You don't have a degree. You've gotten to travel a whole lot, been all over New Zealand and all over Australia and all over the United States. And I was like, you got to go finish that degree. And because every time you start a new school, you end up taking a couple steps back. It's not like a clean progress. And so right. this whole education period took quite a while. Even going, I remember going down to New Zealand, like their school year didn't line up with our school year. I got, there was like a three month break, which for me was awesome. I got to like travel around New Zealand for a while before school started taking pictures of like these fascinating landscapes. Anyway, when I got back to school to finish school at St. Michael's College in Winooski, Vermont, the advisor to the school newspaper was a copy editor at the local metro in Burlington, at the Burlington Free Press. This guy's name was Paul Bake, and he was talking to one of the photo editors at the Free Press, and they needed somebody at some point. He's like, I, you know, the photo editor at the school paper right now is quite good. If you need somebody, I can connect you. And so my last year of school, I started shooting for this Gannett-owned Burlington Free Press. And when I finished school that year, I was shooting for them, I don't know about every day, but a lot of days, you know, like four or five days a week. But as a stringer, not as a staff member, this was assignment work. You know, I was shooting two or three things a day. It's very much different than what I do today. Did you get a full-time job there then? No, I didn't. So I was stringing for the Burlington Free Press, but... Like many times before in this story, I got antsy and didn't want to be in the same place anymore. Like I was in Vermont and even though I was like traveling around Vermont shooting, it was like a small paper and that didn't bother me necessarily so much, but I wanted to be out West or go someplace else. And so I was applying for jobs as a staff photographer. Like I was like really at that point in time, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a staff photographer and I applied, I have no idea to like hundreds of papers this was like right before journalism really went to hell, but it was already going to hell. So like people were already losing jobs, but it wasn't the height of that because this is about 2005. So I was applying to all these jobs and like once in a while I would get, I got like an offer. I remember I got an offer. I think it was in North Dakota at some random small paper. They wanted to pay me like $18,000 a year. <laughs> you know, and I was like, I don't think I want to go live in North Dakota or make $18,000 a year. And anyway, eventually I got so antsy that I, again, got in a car with a buddy and hit the road and started driving across America and traveling again and just shooting pictures of everything I saw. And at that time, we ended up in Colorado. And then I had friends at Lake Tahoe in California. And I was in Colorado and they just seemed to be having the greatest time. You know, it was a bunch of old friends and they were like, the winters are amazing. The summers are amazing. It's the most beautiful place. And so I hitchhiked to California from Colorado. And when I got there, I saw a job at one of the local papers. It was called the Tahoe Daily Tribune. 
but the job they had was design director. And I wanted to be a staff photographer, but like I was pretty much out of money. I was living in a log cabin on the North Shore that was completely heated by a wood-burning stove. Um, <laughs> and this was like a pretty rickety cabin. I mean, it was the type of cabin that if you lit a match on the inside and it was windy, the match would certainly blow out. Our lives pretty much revolved around chopping wood, finding <laughs> wood, uh, stoking the fire at night. And it was awesome. It was great. But this job came open and I was like, design, photography. Like, I have some design experience from the yearbook. Could I possibly convince them that I can do this job? And I remember looking at the thing and it's like, you need to use cork. And I was like, what is cork? And so I like somehow did some research and started doing training as much as I could. And I applied for the job and I was there and they called me back and they're like, do you have design experience? And I was like, yes. Do you know how to use cork? Yes. And <laughs> these were totally not true. I mean, like if you count your high school yearbook as design experience, then sure it was true, but I didn't have practical experience designing a daily newspaper, that's for sure, let alone directing the design of a daily newspaper. And so I did this cram, learn how to use a program really quickly thing, and did a design test and went in and did multiple interviews. And I don't think I would use the word lie, but like somehow finagled my way into a job on the design desk of the Tahoe Daily Tribune with some maybe not totally realistic claims of what my skills were. <laughs> But with the idea that if I could get in, I could get into the photo department. And that's what I did. So it started that I was like, okay, I'm designing a newspaper at night. That means my days are open. Who's the photo editor? And I talked to that person. I'm like, hey, if you guys need some help, I really like taking pictures. Here's my portfolio. And they're like, okay, cool, yeah. Uh, the paper was in South Lake Tahoe, which is in the mountains in the Sierra Nevada, you know. But for a quiet place in the mountains, it's a kind of a rowdy news environment. The lake is split between Nevada and California. So on the Nevada side and state line, there's all these casinos, which drives a lot of crime, which is great. We were in the forest, so there was a lot of fires, which was great. And then there was like a raging tourist economy, which also actually creates news, both because businesses want to appear for those tourists and because tourists cause trouble. And maybe that's them getting stuck in a tree skiing, and maybe that's them doing something much more nefarious. But... I started shooting pictures during the day for the paper and designing it at night. And I was there for three years working pretty much around the clock. And I loved it. I was effectively driving around every day with a scanner in my car, a police scanner. And I would go home and put the police scanner by my bed. And I was just constantly listening to the cops and trying to be at the news before they were. And <laughs> I was pesky. And what's great in a small town, you know, this is community newspapering. Like, you get to know everybody. You get to know the firemen, you get to know the police, you get to know the entire community. And in retrospect, I think that's super powerful and super important, really. It's something that I think a lot of communities are missing. And it's a period in my life now that I reflect back on really positively as understanding empathy, which is something you know might not relate to community newspapering, but it really is. Like when you're covering the stabbing of a kid and you know the parents and you're taking a picture of the crime scene, like how to be sensitive in those environments. It's very good training. And at the time, maybe after about a year, I was like, I just want to get out of here. I want to do something bigger. I want to go international. I don't want to be here. But looking back on it, having to shoot three or four assignments in a day, even if they were shitty assignments, and then spending the night doing not what I necessarily wanted, but I was willing to do it in order to get my foot in the door to shoot photos. It was a really important part of my development, I think, as a journalist. 
Yeah, that sounds like a great experience. And it reminds me, yeah, I got my start at the Myrtle Beach Sun News. And oh, I was yeah. the <laughs> I was the tourism reporter. I mean, I was a lot of different things, but uh, like I made my main beat was tourism, so and biker rallies and all sorts of crazy shit that would go on. I bet that's um, a similar it's probably a similar environment. Like the Myrtle Beach to Lake Tahoe newspapering environment is probably kind of similar, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it uh, has quite the same redneck vibe, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nevada has its own vibe that's very unique to Nevada. <laughs> right, yeah, the casinos and stuff. But yeah, no, and like listening to the, the police scanners and stuff like that, showing up at fire scenes and stuff like that, I, I really enjoyed that. But at the time, my whole attitude was, get me the hell out of here, like Myrtle Beach is too small. I got to get out of here. But now that I look back, uh, it's like, well, I should have chilled out a little bit. I I actually had it very good. I got to cover a lot of exciting stories, like planes would crash and like, Mm -hmm. like Nikki Haley did her first run for governor. And she was like, and went from a nobody to like this huge star. And like our state house reporter was laid off. So I'd follow her around every time she came to the area and like make trouble for her and stuff like that. So it was a great experience. And yeah, I felt much more in touch with the community than any other job I ever had subsequently. So I'm glad I got it in at least a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say, I had a very similar experience where I've never had a job, especially now, like at the New York Times, like who our readers are and audience and and the community. It's such a amorphous thing. It's the world. That community experience, I had it a little bit at the Fruit Press in Vermont, but I was a stringer. It wasn't quite the same. And when I was in Tahoe, so at that period, that's when the newspaper layoffs really started to kick in. And I don't remember the numbers, but I think when I started, the newsroom was probably like 40 people. And by the time I was leaving three or four years later, it was probably like 15 people. Like almost everybody got laid off. All well, Was it a chain paper or no? Yep. Owned by, it was owned by Swift. I don't know if it was okay, owned yeah. by Swift. But and especially they owned all these little mountain papers, like resort papers in the mountains of Colorado in California. But I, because I was there and because I'd become very multi-skilled, I could shoot and design... I didn't get laid off. And eventually I took over the photo department because it was me. And, you know, everybody got laid off and I was still around. It was both very sad and it also changed my career path a little bit because I had all of a sudden real say over the the photography direction of the paper and the design direction. And, you know, I could put on my resume that I was like leading two departments. I mean, there were departments of like either zero or two or three people, but... (laughs) On paper, it looked like, and that's, I think, how I got my my next job. I was really hyper-focused on trying to move international and, you know, work in journalism outside of the United States. And some opportunity came up. I saw it on journalismjobs.com, and somebody <laughs> needed a photography and design consultant in Algeria. And I was like, huh, I can do those things. And they wanted to go, this was on a grant from the State Department called the Journalism Development Group. And... Their mission was to help instill better newspaper practices in the Middle East, in North Africa. And they would place American journalists as resident journalists in African papers to help show kind of how we cover the news. And in this instance, they needed a photographer and design person. And I did it. I applied. I got the job. And through a lot of bureaucracy related to visas and all that, eventually I got to Algeria. And it was like wildly different than anything I had ever experienced. I think both in probably life, but also 
<laughs> in terms of newspaper culture. I mean, it was just like so different. I worked at one French paper and one Arabic paper, La Voix d'Orani and uh, Sata Garb. And these newsrooms were just like very rambunctious. They were very small. They were super smoky. I remember the design department of this one, for some reason it was like on the second floor and it had like four foot or five foot ceilings. So whenever you were in there, you had to kind of crouch down unless you were sitting and <laughs> everybody was smoking and it was so smoky and they had all these language issues because like the Sahara reporter from Southern Sahara, like didn't speak Arabic or didn't speak like he spoke some, I don't know, some, some language. And so there was a lot of translation things that would go on in like really archaic ways. Like somebody would phone in a story and they would literally read what they had written. And the person on the other end of the phone would then read that into somebody's ear who was typing. But in a lot of cases, there was one more person who was translating that to get into a language that was useful. And so there was like these terrible games of telephone going on and people smoking and it was loud. And I wonder how old I was at the time. It was my first like real job out of the country. And it was like coming from Lake Tahoe, California, where a newsroom had just been decimated by layoffs and we were covering American things. This was very different. And I was, I think, probably way over my head. But at the same time, I'm like happy about the work I did there. And of course, it gave me this experience of being a design and photography consultant at an international level, which, yeah, it was kind of true. I didn't have much experience in it, but I got a unprompted email from China Daily and they said, hey, you know, would you be interested? Unprompted, wow. An unprompted email about a redesign of China Daily. And they were looking for people with kind of international design skills to make their paper more sophisticated and more modern. And that's kind of the stuff I had been doing in Algeria and a little bit in California too, was redesigning papers. You know, like my passion was shooting photographs and I, I got to do it because I was willing to redesign papers in different languages. And so... I had to go back to California for an interview at this hotel in San Francisco. But at the time it was like my job in Algeria was, it was pretty tough. Like I was living in hotels. There was a lot of security involved. I had a full-time translator and a full-time driver and a full-time security person. And like getting things like a beer was pretty hard. You could get it in a hotel, but it was like, it was a pretty difficult working environment. And all of a sudden the Chinese came along and they were like, We'll pay you lots of money and bring you to China. And at that point, I knew so little about China. Like, I went in so ignorant. The thing that I saw was new location, never been there before, more money. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. And I signed a contract <laughs> for a year, flew to Beijing, and somehow ended up in the state media propaganda system. And I had no idea. Like, looking back on it now, to be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I did it. I don't often talk about it. I don't hide that I did it, but I don't often talk about it, but that I redesigned the China Daily. And the way I look at it now is from such a different light after, because I ended up staying in China for eight years, is like, I can't believe I would have done that. I'm like offended that I did it. It feels like a, not a crime against humanity, but something, something like that. Um, like I harbor some guilt. I think. Just, do you think you view yourself as a collaborator, that sort of thing? collaborator in like the, the, um, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe not collaborator, but a, I made that paper more accessible. So the China daily you see today on newsstands around the world is the China daily that I designed. It's, they're still using it. Like I redesigned 
everything from the flag, you know, the masthead, the, the logos, to their typography and photography philosophies, to the entire thing. And so, like, I'm still reminded on it. Every time I have to go past a China Daily <laughs> newspaper box, I'm like, fuck, why did you do that? Um, but <laughs> And that's because of what I've learned over this time about the Chinese, shouldn't say the Chinese government, but the, the party and the propaganda machine. At the same time of being a little bit disturbed with myself that I did it, the stuff I saw in there, the thing I experienced working inside state media, because what people don't understand about a redesign of a newspaper is it gets into workflow. You have to change everything. If you're going to change a design, you're talking about, in this case, they didn't have designers. They had editors who were designing the pages. And so I was like, you need a design department. We got to bring in designers. We hired like, and this was nuts too. It was like, I had the world's biggest piggy bank with no bottom to it. I was like, I need 20 designers. They're like, here you go. Hire 20 people. I'm like, can I bring 10 people in from the West? Sure. Wow. We were changing the logo on top of the building and it was nuts. The amount of money I was getting. I was like, these people all need new IMAX a day later, new IMAX for everybody. It was like having, like I said, just this really deep pockets to do this thing. And so as it relates to workflow, you're like, okay, so the designers need the pages by seven. That means the editors need to finish them by six. That means the reporter's new deadline of this section is at five. That means their morning meeting needs to be at 10 because everything gets impacted. And they, for better or worse, listened to me and carried out this plan. And because I was involved in that workflow, I got to see some of the propaganda machine at work. Everything from like memos coming down saying you can't publish this to this needs to change to say this, to directives about stories. Because when you, know, when you go in to do something like that, you have to kind of see how they're functioning. You can't just go in and change everything. And I've learned this, especially in Algeria, actually. A young American guy, this is like, bring a young white guy into the room, and he's going to tell you what to do, does not work. People will meet change with hesitation. And hesitation would be a nice way to say it, actually. <laughs> Like no one wants to be told their deadline is different or they need to do their job differently from some guy from a different country who doesn't understand your country. And I would say in both of these cases, Algeria and China, that was the case. And so I was sitting in news meetings. I was trying to learn everything I could about the process, about the people, about the culture. So I saw things that were disturbing at that time, but I was so hyper-focused on this redesign and getting it done. I did a little bit of journalism on the side, but for the China Daily. But most of my time was spent in this crazy bureaucratic machine trying to convince people 40 years older than me who might not speak English that my ideas were good and that they should change their visual representation to how the world is being fed their propaganda. And so it was a great experience that I had insight into that process. It was a great experience into understanding the propaganda machine and why China thinks it's so important, why they invest so much money into it. But when I got out of that job, it was 2009, and I think that's when I was like, holy shit, I'm in Beijing. There is so much work here for photographers, and it's so exciting to be here. I was having so much fun. It was kind of like a renaissance, like going back to college again. And so instead of leaving after the job, I stayed on and started freelancing. How long were you at China Daily? I didn't get it done in a year. I was supposed to get it done in a year. And I got it done in like probably like a year and three, four months, probably. So you get out of China Daily. There's a ton of freelancing work to do. And at this point, I mean, you're still a still photographer, but this is when things kind of change, right? Yeah, this is exactly the moment. So like the planets aligned effectively, right? Like I got out of this crazy Kafka-esque 
job of China Daily, and it was like China was so exciting to me then because I wasn't part of the system. And this at this point in time, it was like totally normal for freelance journalists without visas to be <laughs> living in China and doing real journalism for lots of different papers. It was like the Wild West. It was just amazing. And at the same time, a camera came out that changed my life. And that's kind of silly to say that a camera changed your life, but it's happened to me multiple times, so I guess it can happen. But this camera, at this point, was the the 5D Mark II. And I'd been a little bit hesitant or resistant to video because I like to travel so much, and, and traveling was all about how to do it light and comfortable. And so that's why stills was so appealing to me, because I didn't need that much stuff. Um, but when the 5D Mark II came out, all of a sudden, the DSLR, this camera that I was already familiar with and comfortable with, could shoot video. And not just video, it could shoot like good looking video. And all of a sudden it became super appealing to be able to shoot video, both because I was like interested in it and also because it was like another revenue stream. I was in these freelance cohorts where we'd be like, okay, let's see if we can do a photo, video, and words package. Let's hit this publication. And we'd come at editors with like a full blown, at this point, like a multimedia package, you know, like here's all the assets you need for like a big presentation. Do you want to buy it? We don't need much money. And so I started diving into video and I, I don't know if obsessed is the right word, but like I became fairly obsessive about it into understanding how video works. Since then I've become kind of really dorky about camera science, understanding how pixels are made in the relationship between light and pixels and sensors and color, especially color is like one of my big fascinations just as a topic. So at this point I start getting into it though. I always liked technology. Video is a very technology-driven field. And at that time, because of that camera, a lot of people started making these little films. People used to call us like Generation 5D, and we were very different than our video predecessors because a lot of us started in stills and moved into video. And a lot of us were a little bit more nimble with technology. And all this technology started being flooded into the market about how to make these things more cinematic. Everything from maybe not gimbals back then, but like smaller steady cams and sliders and pocket jibs and all the technology that would bring the power of Hollywood into my hands. And it started as like, hey, let's try making some short docs to 10 years later or 11 years later where I just live and breathe it. And that's all I do. I mean, I take stills for fun now. I still take a lot of stills and I do it for the paper sometimes. Like there's specific instances, but I live and breathe video and the technology that surrounds it. And the stories do so well in video that, or I would say, are do better in video. Video storytelling is such a unique thing in our rich media world at this moment. Probably to a problem, actually. Like there's too much of it, clearly. So I started freelancing and making these videos. And at first, we were making them in our backyards, like on spec. You interviewed Kit Gillett on the podcast earlier, and Kit was one of my early collaborators. We made these videos about the hutongs of Beijing. And I remember we were going to do a screening of these docks somewhere in the intersecond ring and the police shut it down. And I was like, wow. And I think it was around this time that I really started to see China differently. I started to feel China. like Because when you're in the propaganda system, it was like, okay, I can see why this is dangerous. And then all of a sudden I became a target of it in a different way. And I, I was still fairly inexperienced in video, but it was in 2011, I'd been shooting for a couple of years freelance, when I got a pretty frantic call from the New York Times. A video editor in New York needed something shot, and it was just an interview and some B-roll of this filmmaker, actually. His name's Zhao Yang. 
he made these wonderful documentaries. Uh, the one I remember the most is called Crime and Punishment. And so Ed Wong was doing a story on a documentary filmmaker, and they thought it would be cool to like have clips of his docs and hear him talking. And this is early days of video at the Times. Like they had a video department, but they'd only been around for probably like I think five years, maybe then six years. Anyway, I get a call from a random editor. His name was Dave Rummel. I'm still in touch with him today. And he asked if I'll go shoot this thing. And I'm like, I'm so into this. I'm like, all right, the New York Times, this is awesome. And, you know, I did that job. We made a little video. A week later, same guy calls back. He's like, hey, Ed's going out to, uh, what's this place called? It was the last Maoist village in China. It's like a kind of a story that a lot of people do. <laughs> it's almost like you'll, you'll see a couple of them every year. Yeah, I'm positive I've read a story about this place, yeah. They claim to be the last Maoist commune in China, and it's like bullshit. And so anyway, it started a pattern, though, where the Times, you know, they had a guy with a J-1 visa, a video journalist in Beijing, but he stopped, you know, the relationship either went bad or he stopped taking the calls. I don't know what happened. It wasn't good. But I was totally happy and willing. And back then, it was one job, and then it was two jobs, and it just snowballed to the point probably about a year or two later where... I was shooting for them all the time. I think maybe back then, this is probably around 2013, I could shoot like 50 videos in a year, which in video terms is tremendous. Like now I can make like three or four. (laughs) I mean, these are different types of videos, obviously, but I was really working for them all the time. And I still, because I was freelance, at least at that beginning point there, I was still doing some commercial work on the side, which was earning the majority of my money. I wasn't getting paid much from the times. I think I was getting paid... It may have been $1,000 a video, or it may have been $1,500 a video. But you got to think, it's not one day of work. I was shooting it. I was editing it. I was writing the videos back then. And this was the way Times Video was for a long time. I was a one-man band. And it started that I was always accompanying a print journalist, and all of my videos were going with their stories. They were, like, paired together. And eventually, I think I was working for them so much, because if you make 50 videos and each one takes a couple days at minimum you start to realize that you're pretty much working for somebody full-time. And I think I guilted them into giving me a contract. And with that contract came a J-1 visa. Or maybe they got the J-1 visa first, actually. But my career at the New York Times has gone from freelancer to contractor with the New York Times. And then I got my first staff job, and that was actually with the INYT, the International New York Times. And so that is mostly for tax purposes, actually, I think. But, well, it allows them to not make you a foreign correspondent, right? I was a local hire. And there's like some pretty good, significant freelance fodder to understand there. Like the difference between a local hire and a foreign correspondent in terms of benefits is really significant. Some of my colleagues, beyond having significantly bigger salaries, would have things like, you know, a chef come to their house and drivers and full-time news assistants. And I mean, I guess I had a full-time news assistant eventually, but the difference is significant in terms of all the benefits that go along with it, from your health insurance to your maternity policy or paternity policy, stuff like that. And then I got my first job after the INYT with the NYT. And so that process now from freelance contractor, INYT to NYT is nine years. I'll hit my 10 year anniversary sometime in 2021. Wow. 10 years. (laughs) It's nuts. (laughs) 
And uh, yeah, I think so. This is around the time we first crossed paths. So I moved to China in 2011. I lived in Shanghai until 2013. You know, I would go up to Beijing sometimes, and I was friends with Dan Chinoy, who you know from China Daily. I I seem to remember, and he lived two floors above you, if that's correct. And so we'd kind of run into each other. We didn't know each other very well. And then I moved to Beijing in 2013, and in this period, you were freelancing. And I remember, yeah, I didn't hang out with you very much because you just like worked like a fucking animal. You were like stringing for everybody. And like Kit tells a story on his episode about editing 24 hours straight or something. And he falls asleep on like your floor and wakes up and you're still at it. And, you know, you're doing stuff for Global Post and all that. And I think there was one time, one very short period where we hung out a bit more. I think it was the time when you were transitioning to full-time for the New York Times, where you were finally like, I'm not going to work for a month or something like that. But uh, yeah, I remember you being this kind of workaholic type. Um, Yeah. I mean, the thing is, that's totally true. And just to like put a button on Kit there, I've never been described. I think he described me as a devil. Um, <laughs> like that was just, that or a was demon, a, yeah, or something. A demon, yeah. it was, whatever. I haven't been described that way before. <laughs> I mean, I was definitely a workaholic. It was definitely problematic. But at the same time, I had so much fun. Like I was going everywhere. I would been all over China, like almost every province and all over Asia too. Like this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to travel. I wanted to shoot. I wanted to do it again. As soon as I came home and the more I got into it, the more serious I got in my journalism. At first I was so hyper-focused on aesthetic and visuals and impact. I want to take a picture that people see and react to immediately. And then, you know, years later, it's like, I want to make a video that makes somebody cry or make somebody think about their life differently. And I was getting into more and more serious topics And this was this progression of my China life where by the end of it, I viewed China so differently than when I showed up. I mean, I think everybody probably has that experience, but my experience was pretty tough at the end. I had some friends get arrested. I had some friends get kicked out. I had a subject of mine who's still in jail get taken as a result of my reporting. There were so many experiences I had that resulted in run-ins with Chungwan or PSB or plainclothes police, you know, state security. And by the end of it, I didn't really feel like it was safe to do my job anymore. Videos can be very incriminating, right? You're in a tech story, man, surname Chong says this and this and Lang Joe, like no one cares. And to photography with some degree too, you can provide a pretty good degree of anonymity. But in video, you really put people out there. Like the cops can hear what people say. They can see what people do. And the transition that happened when Xi Jinping took power was tremendous. During the Hu era, we didn't know we had it good. We thought China was tough to work in. We thought China was like a little bit rough around the edges, but we loved it. But we didn't know that things were awesome. (laughs) We didn't know that it was totally fine to have all these, this like vibrant community of freelancers. I remember my freelance days in Beijing and I felt like I knew I could name probably 30 to 40 other Western photographers, video journalist types who were friends of mine, like 30 or 40 in Beijing. It was nuts. You know, I remember going to dinners. I was at this one dinner once and we were having these amazing ribs. And I got a call from some British publication. They're like, hey, something's happening at Gonti right now. Can you get over there? And I didn't want to go. And I was like, hold on. And I looked up and I was at this table with like 12 other photographers. (laughs) And I think at the table, it was me 
and James Wasserman and Jasper James and Adam Dean and Stephen Chow and Sean Gallagher, I think. It was like, there was just like all these like Western photographers. And I was like, hold on, let me, and I put the phone next to my chest for a second. I was like, hey, anyone want to shoot right now? And someone was like, fine, I'll do it. It was such a great <laughs> scene. And it was like super friendly too. Like the freelance scene now, I don't, I'm not in it, but I do work with the freelance scene very close. And I don't see it totally that way right now where like people were supporting each other passing work back and forth, trying to promote each other's work. Maybe it's going on. I don't see it because I'm not part of it. But I know back then at that period of my life, it was super meaningful to have this crowd of aspirational people around me. Oh yeah. Keith was there. Keith Bedford. And I think maybe Shiho may have been there. And oh yeah. Chien. There was like, just like a lot of great photographers around at any moment. And Gilles, Gilles Sabri, who's still in China. Oh, wow. I mean, I remember obviously less the photographers and more the, the other journalists, but I, yeah, I remember meeting Kit and Mitch. I don't even remember how I got in touch with them, but went and had coffee with them and they just like told me how things worked. And I was like, this is amazing. This is, this is <laughs> yeah. totally like I've come to the right place. And it was that way. And I mean, I was on a tourist visa, but so many other people were. My boss at China Economic Review, Graham Earnshaw, used to always like say, welcome to China where nothing is legal and everything is possible because like yeah. just everybody looks the other way. So that's what it was like for me. And that led to so many wild adventures. And like, I don't use that word lightly, adventure, but that's what it felt like. Every assignment was, let's go have an adventure. And something wacky would happen, something dangerous would happen, something kind of unbelievable would happen. And we'd come back with like these vivid stories to tell our friends and to tell the world. It was so much fun. But yeah, it's crazy how we didn't realize at the time how good we had it. No, um, we didn't. And I, I think to the point of how serious things got, you know, and how much I was working, like, yeah, I was a workaholic, but it was because it was my life and I was having so much fun doing it. It was like one opportunity after another. You know, when I was doing some work with Kit, like I remember I was like, hey, Kit, do you want to drive across Mongolia? We're going to drive from Ulaanbaatar down to China. Like, yeah, let's go do it. That sounds awesome. And we almost killed ourselves, but we, we lived. But we were just having all of these adventures and... Everyone came back with stories and we were getting paid for it. And then I was going to say, I remember towards the end of your time there, you were essentially living in Hong Kong, but the Times, because of visa issues, was like clinging on to anybody with a J visa they could because they couldn't get new visas. So you were like living in Hong Kong, but somehow maintaining your J visa and going back and forth. And yep. uh, yeah, well, how, how did things go in the end of your time? Just because I, I don't think we were really in touch then. Uh, so it's complicated. So what happened was my girlfriend got pregnant and we were like, what should we do? And maybe a lot of people in their life will come to that moment. <laughs> and we were like, <laughs> let's get married and have a kid and have the kid. And we were like, okay, let's do it. And we were both like, but we don't really want to do it here in Beijing. Had so many horror stories from friends, not all, but some. And the thought of navigating the Chinese healthcare system was not appealing. And I'd kind of wanted to leave China before then. And my girlfriend at the time, wife now, really wanted, because she got there before me. She, she'd been there for a while. She's from the Netherlands. And so they wouldn't let me leave, though. So what happened was in 2012, we had like a pretty great year at the Times. Barboza won this Pulitzer about the Wenzhou Bao reporting. And we won a Pulitzer about the Foxconn reporting and, you know, a bigger team. And that resulted in all of our visas being frozen. No one could leave because if you left, you couldn't come back in. 
And in retrospect now, that's a better problem than we have right now. So I was stuck there for a long time and they really wouldn't let me leave. I think that was another reason why I got the contract in the first place is because I was like, look, you guys are hiring me for, you know, 120 days out of the year. This is taking up all of my time and I want to leave China. If you want me to stay here, got to give me a salary. So that was part of that calculation. I'm sure that was good leverage for me at the time, but I couldn't leave until my wife got pregnant. And then I told them, I'm like, look, we don't want to have this baby here. Move us to Hong Kong. I'll maintain my visa. And so to maintain a visa in the mainland, I had to be there 180 days a year. I think it was 180. It was a while ago now. Maybe it was 220, actually. I don't remember the number of days you had to be there, but whatever it was, I was willing to do it (laughs) if they let us move to Hong Kong. And this was good because all of a sudden I was a contractor without benefits to telling them I would maintain their visa if they gave me a job which would be very important in terms of having health care and moving us to Hong Kong. And so they did it. And for the first year, it was easy because I'd already been in the mainland for like the first two trimesters of the pregnancy. And we moved right before trimester three. So that first year was easy to maintain the visa. The second year was much harder. And effectively, though, I had an apartment in Beijing and I had an apartment in Hong Kong. And I would often stay in Shenzhen just to like get a couple nights in. <laughs> um, right. Uh, Because they were trying to kick us out. They were looking for any excuse for anybody who was potentially not following the visa rules. And it worked for a while, but eventually they caught me because I didn't hit that mark. And I haven't been in China since. Oh, that's not true. I once got a transit visa. So since being denied my last visa, because I tried to get one just to see if I could continue to get them. And eventually they said, no, you're not here. We know you're not here. And so I haven't been back since in earnest, but I guess it was... Two years ago, I went through on a transit visa on my way to North Korea. Okay. What year did uh, you pack up and head to the States? Did you stick around in Hong Kong a while longer? And Mm. I guess before I get ahead of myself, I mean, is there any story behind getting rejected for the visa or was it very all just straightforward? They were just like, no way. And that's that. There's a complicated thing. It's a little bit hard to tell this story quickly, but so like there was a medical issue, which is like... I'm not like super embarrassed about it. I don't think I've ever talked about it publicly. So like I was in Hong Kong and I was kind of doing this thing, going back and forth all the time. And it was fine until one day I started having a lot of bruising on my body. And I was like, this is weird. And then I had what I thought was a rash on my feet. And anyway, I ended up having a blood disorder that just came out of nowhere. And it's a platelet disorder. And Maybe I had it before. I don't really know. I don't think so. But it's a chronic thing. And it came out of nowhere. And it's an autoimmune disease. Like, all of a sudden, I'm perfectly healthy. I'm, Of course, I'm working too much. I'm working around the clock. I'm traveling, like, thousands and thousands of miles a year. All of a sudden, I get a this autoimmune disease. And in Hong Kong, they're like, okay, hold on. What's going on with this guy? He's got bruising. I started having some bleeding symptoms, like just random bloody noses. And they were like we think you have cancer. And I'm like, excuse me? And they're like, you have a really low platelet count. This isn't a rash on your feet. This is petechia. They're burst blood vessels. And so I had this very like scary cancer scare moment. And so this disease I have, ITP, is coming at the same time as this other stuff. And like, pending how you look at it, if we were in Russia, I think we would look at it very differently. That people who are close to each other, they're all of a sudden have similar weird conditions. But we're in China. They're not really known for poisoning people. And if they were going to poison people, I don't think it would be me. Out of all of the journalists <laughs> causing trouble, I don't think I was at the top of that list or near the top of that list at all. So like, there's the conspiracy theorist 
in oneself who can be like, this is a weird coincidence. But at the same time, I had had some serious issues with security, both with a close friend of mine at the time, Peter Dahlin, who was famously kicked out of China. Yeah. And and I was a little bit connected to him because we were close friends. We would hang out all the time. When he went missing, I was one of the people who had to ring the alarm bells. Peter used to always say, he he was paranoid saying, I think they're going to come get me. You know, if you don't hear from me, call the Swedish embassy. Here's my emergency contact. Here's all the details. And like me and one other person or two other people had these details. And he was saying it for years. And then one time he said it and he did disappear. And we had to act. And so like Peter was in trouble and all the network associated with Peter was in trouble and a subject of mine was in trouble. I was having all these serious problems with state security at the time this was going on. Anyway, the Hong Kong medical system, which everyone puts up on the shelf of being great, really couldn't figure out what was going on with me. And they have to do what is called a test of exclusion, where they're like, okay, we think this is leukemia. We think this is AIDS. We think, And they test you for all of these horrible things. And if you don't have all of those horrible things, then you have this thing that I have, which is a platelet <laughs> disorder. But it's idiopathic. They don't know why it happens. And... According to any medical expert I've ever talked to, no one can make you have this intentionally. So it was odd that I was having this really serious medical problem and having problems with security at the same time. But I was stuck in the Hong Kong system and their solution was to like give me this medicine, which cost $100 a day. And that was after insurance, 100 US dollars, not Hong Kong dollars. And I was like, okay, how long do I have to do it for? And they're like, forever. And I was like, like, what? Like, I'm sorry, but I can't really afford to pay $3,000 a month for the rest of my life on some pill that keeps me alive. And so anyway, I found a specialist in New York and the Times was very supportive of me at this time. And the specialist in New York had a different treatment. It's actually a leukemia treatment that would potentially make this problem go away for a good period of time. And then I would have to do it again. And so I was like, okay, I don't want to take medicine daily. I definitely don't want to spend $3,000 a day. I'll go try this, this treatment in New York. And I got transferred to New York and they moved me to this office, to the headquarters. This was the thing. Like I had a pre-existing condition then, but because of Obamacare and the ACA, I was able to get insurance and it was all covered. Whereas in Hong Kong, because I wasn't in America and it was considered a pre-existing condition, the Times couldn't change my insurance, actually. These international insurers wouldn't take me on. Ah, okay. So like there was this medical thing, but at the same time, I felt like I was having trouble producing in China without causing serious problems for people. And I'd been there for eight years. That was after being in Algeria. And so I hadn't been in America in almost a decade. I was like, this is great. Let's go see if we can hit this problem, take care of the problem in the United States medical system. And let's try working out of the headquarters of the New York Times, see what that's like. And that was four years ago now. So I showed up and Obama was still president. And my wife, who is Dutch, she's like, is Hillary going to win? I'm like, yeah, Hillary's going to win. And we showed up before... And within, I think, probably a month, the election happened. And all of a sudden, I found myself in the biggest news story of the world. I think it's the biggest news story of the world, probably. The last four years of American politics have been just, you know, crushing in terms of the news cycle. But it's been an interesting time to come back to the United States at such like a divisive time and such a chaotic time. And that's how I got to the United States, though. Wow. And did did your problem go away? Are you... So, so, so my treatment so work? Yeah. So here's where it's weird. The doctors were all like, this is for life. It doesn't go away. Here's a treatment you can do. It should last between six months and two years. And then you do the treatment again. It's a blood infusion and not like chemo, but a little bit in that realm. And it takes a month. And so I did it and it went away. 
And so for the next like six months to two years, I was like, okay, I got a little period here. Like it, it, you know, it definitely compromises your immune system, immunosuppressant, but it let me live a perfectly normal life where I wasn't taking daily medicine. I was doing everything I was doing before. I was traveling just like I had been in Asia, but leaving from New York now, I was even going to Asia to work. And it was just a different base. But the entire time I've been expecting the medicine to wear off like they said it would. And now it's four years later and it hasn't worn off and I'm still here and I haven't done it again. My platelet count is lower than the average humans, but it's not dangerous at all. I live a totally normal life short of having a lower platelet count than the person sitting next to me on the subway. That's great. Wow. Wow. It is great. It just fuels my conspiracy theory that something happened to me. And maybe I drank some bad water. Who knows? You know, it's China. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it could be inadvertent, you know, consuming God knows what in China, especially back in that era. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is wild. I don't think I'm considered a miracle of science or anything like that. But, it, <laughs> but, but at the same time, I've defied what everyone said would happen. And I feel great. And my time at the New York Times, the headquarters has been totally eye-opening. And eventually, I moved from being a field video journalist into a more strategic position, starting the cinematography unit, the first cinematography unit at the Times, managing both our technology, our aesthetic, and our strategy into how we tell stories with cameras. So it's been a pretty interesting transition to see the inside of the newsroom. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, the start to finish story. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's long. It's super interesting. Yeah, the one but, thing I would say that, that I didn't mention that's important, actually, that I would say is important, is that while I'm doing all that stuff, I still like moonlight as a video journalist and take assignments and make documentaries, short form docs or interactives. Like I'm still producing stuff on the side, but they're just usually long term projects. So like there's the strategy part of my job and then there's, you know, whatever the fuck I want to do type part of my job where I'm like, I still want to produce stuff. I'm still ambitious about covering the news. I just can't do as much of it as I used to because of this other part of my job. And that's intentional because I have a family now. I don't want to be on the road 300 days a year. Yeah, no, that seems like a good spot to be at. And so, yeah, then the next section, I normally talk about a couple of stories. If you can pick one story that you're proud of and just kind of walk us through what it was and how you went about doing it. This is a really tough one, especially right now because I do so few stories. You know, I do like maybe three or four things in a year and like all of them come with like pretty awesome stories. I think on the reporting side, though, like the one that was most challenging, I would highlight from last year, just this recent, is the story I did about methane with Hiroko, a Times climate reporter. I was hoping you would choose this one. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I, I've been doing a lot, a lot of environmental reporting since 2018. And I saw this piece and I was like, just like, this is so fucking simple, but it's so fucking brilliant. God damn it. Like, <laughs> thank you. It was really tough, though. So the idea here with this story was we wanted to show methane leaks, and then we wanted to tie those leaks to lobbyists, to oil and gas lobbyists, to the Trump administration. And we'd been told there was massive methane leaks, but methane is invisible. You can't see it. You can't smell it. How do we show people this? And when the idea came to me, it came from the climate desk. They're like, hey, is there anything you can do with this? And I was like, I'm not totally sure, but... Let me like see if there's something we can do. And I'd long been fascinated with infrared photography. Like I'm really into it. The spectrum of what we see as light and color is very narrow compared to the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So where does methane fall into that? And what kind of camera can see that? And I'd seen these wild pictures of infrared, 
you know, there's like a niche group of hobbyists that convert cameras into infrared cameras and they take these like really cool pictures. But in this case, methane is not in that near infrared space. It's in the far infrared space. So it wasn't something that I could just like take one of my cameras and convert it and then be able to see it. It took a lot of work. And so for months I was researching infrared and so, for example, I think methane falls in between 3.2 and 3.4 micrometers on the electromagnetic spectrum. And so I started talking to engineers and electrical engineers and eventually made my way to some OGI guys. And they're like, go talk to the guys at FLIR, this company, this big company that makes infrared cameras. And they're like, they make industrial equipment that actually monitors this stuff. I'm sure they have a way, they have cameras to see it. And so through understanding where methane was, asking what cameras could see that. And then I had to start getting trained in infrared, which is like a whole nother world. Because when you're photographing light, you're looking for contrast. You see something that's light and something dark. With infrared, contrast is not made up of light, but of heat. So you have to be thinking in a totally different way. And this was like really fun for me. I'm like, okay, so if you want something to stick out from a foreground, that thing in the foreground needs to be a different temperature than in the background. And so I did some training with the FLIR guys on infrared, understanding how it works. But that was just part of it, right? Like how to visualize it. All that's doing is visualizing it. And one of the things I've become really fascinated with is how much powerful data can make our stories. So I'm always looking for ways to take data and put that into my visuals. And so in this case, we knew that we could see methane, but we wanted to be able to talk about how much methane it was. And so this is where it gets a little bit ridiculous, but we found a small plane that had the ability to take live methane readings off it. It was a prop, like a two-seater prop. And I've been in lots of props before, four-seater, six-seater, but this thing was a two-seater. It was really small and it has to fly pretty low off the ground. And I think we were like 400 feet off the ground. And we went down to Texas to the Permian Basin and like they had to get this teeny plane from Colorado to Texas and we met them there. And I remember the day we met them, they're like, oh, the plane broke. That's like nothing you want to hear right before (laughs) you're trying to get on a teeny little plane that's going to fly 400 feet off the ground, let alone over oil and gas infrastructure. And so I fix the plane, I get in the plane, and it's like I have this computer on my lap and you're seeing live methane readings. And when we saw a spike in a reading, we're flying over gas sites, we would go back and we'd do circles around it, trying to calculate how much methane was being leaked at that moment. And we got it, then we took a GPS coordinate, and then we said, okay... We found, I don't remember, we found like maybe 12 leaks that we were going to focus on. And so we went down on the ground. And then this is also like an arduous thing. Like you have to drive hours and hours. These are huge oil fields in Texas. It's like one could be like five or six hours away from the next one. And then when we get there, this is when it gets also really complicated. It's like this infrared camera I had, the sensor had to be at negative 200 degrees Celsius. So it has to cool down a (laughs) tremendous amount. And that takes about 10 minutes. And to power it, it has no battery. Yeah, so that's another thing. The camera has no battery and it has no buttons. It's just a box that you can put lenses on. So you have to operate it with a computer, which means etherneting out from the camera. And you had to power it. I powered it with like these computer backup batteries that weigh like 25 pounds. And there's a 10-minute lag. So here's the rules. We can't trespass. We can't break any laws. We know where the leaks are. We know how much is leaking. What can we see from public land and be able to film in enough time in both the visible light space and an infrared space before security or cops come and start trying to push us along. And because I really thought like the most important thing was to be able to show the image that we see with our eyes and the image that we can't see. 
And so that required being at these sites for quite a while, especially given that there's like this 10 minute startup time on the camera. And so after we did that, we took notes in our notebook, and this is where Hiroko was just like so excellent. She started to see who owns these companies, who are the lobbyists, how much money have they given to the Trump administration, and we made a very direct connection from polluters to money funding policy. And it's pretty stark that these big oil and gas companies that are releasing methane, which is much worse than carbon dioxide for climate change, had literally been funding to move policy in their economic favor. And to me, this was like such a fun thing because it combined all of these things that I love. It combined like muckracking journalism with super dorky camera stuff and kind of the adventure of being on a plane and traveling around and not knowing what you're going to get. When we went down to Texas, we didn't know if this was possible. It was an idea. I knew I wanted to try to have a user be able to scroll back and forth between visible light and infrared images. I knew that's what I wanted, but I didn't know if it was possible. And so it's like one of these things where you have a big idea, you take some risks, sometimes it pays off. Yeah, wow. And I mean, I said it was simple just in the respect that, I mean, the idea at the root of it was just like, let's take this invisible thing and make it visible. visible. And uh, obviously it's much more difficult than that. But I mean, sometimes the simplest ideas are the most brilliant. And yeah, that was a hell of a piece. But yeah, yeah, wow, I didn't know little bits about the airplane and all that. Uh, I'm sure it's probably out there somewhere, but I don't know that if I I read the whole thing about how it was done. There there is some like behind the scenes stuff on the site about how we did it. But this is the thing about the New York Times, which is just amazing, right? There's an article like that or more than one every day. And I think that probably took us, I don't know, six months. It took a long time to figure out how to do that. Even finding a plane that can read methane from the air so we could actually tell people how much was leaking. Because we thought the images by themselves weren't enough. Like we wanted to say, hey, this is the equivalent of X, Y, and Z. We wanted to put data to the images. And all of that stuff requires so much time. It's one of the main reasons I'm thankful to work for the New York Times because they're like, yeah, they're actually giving me the bandwidth and quite honestly funding <laughs> to go do that. And that's rare. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Was there, did you win any awards or anything for that? Yeah, I think a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) Awards is a whole topic of conversation. Let me see if I can figure it out quickly. So, okay. So it was part of a series of articles, which the Times submitted to the Pulitzers. And it was a finalist in public service, which I was really happy about. It wasn't a winner, but like finalist and finalist is, I'll take it. This is a weird one. It's up for an Emmy right now. When we think about Emmys, yeah, yeah, we think about docs and film, but they have an Emmy category for new approaches for current news. I think the Emmys are actually next week. So it's been nominated. I won't know if it wins till next week. It won, I don't even know how to say this one, Malafage. It's like the Spanish infographics world. They claim to be the Pulitzers of infographics. It won an award from POYI, Pictures of the International. Another one from BOP, Best of Photojournalism. One from SND, Society of News Designs. Yeah, it's done okay. Wow, congrats. Yeah, that's great. Thank I'll you. F- figure out if you've won the Emmy before this airs and uh, put it in the intro. Um, <laughs> I hope you get a statuette thing. Yeah, I've only won a statue once before, and it was an RFK, and the organization that I won it for got to keep it. So I would like my own statue. Keep by my front door in case anyone breaks in. I I feel like it's like the best possible quick defense weapon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You with the candlestick in the foyer. That's right. Um, (laughs) With the Emmy Emmy statue. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. 
So then the next thing is just the lightning round. Do you feel ready? I feel ready. So first up is what is a must-read publication or must-watch publication or whatever medium that you look at almost every day? I I was going to say like Twitter brings me everywhere. It's like the gateway to all of the stuff I read. Like I read the Times Daily and then outside of that, it's what has become viral enough that it's like pushed in front of my face and Twitter is the mechanism which makes that happen. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? I read books for fun, uh, especially the past couple of years. Like, that's the thing. Like, I read news all day long. I consume so much of it that when I stopped working, I stopped is like, I'll use air quotes here, but I've tried to make an effort to stop consuming news. And so for fun, I really have been reading a lot of fiction, especially science fiction and dystopian literature. I've just been burning through books the past couple of years of like some of it. Actually, most of it's very old. Like I read all of Dune this year and gone back through like Orwell and like things like that. Like I loved so much reading Animal Farm after I'd lived in China. Like it was really meaningful to me. And in this news environment where I'm like dominated by really horrible news on a second to second basis, it's really like a refreshing thing to stop consuming it and be like, you know what? I'm going to read some classic literature. (laughs) And I found it actually to be very helpful for my mental health. That's great. I guess just out of curiosity, do you find it easy to enjoy? Like if you sit down and watch like any sort of nonfiction video thing, does it always become work for you or do you still get pure enjoyment out of that at any point? I think I do get pure enjoyment, but it's also work. But just like years ago when I was working all the time, it's just not totally the same as work when you live it. You know, like the never ending goal of trying to find the right balance between work and life is something, it's not that I've given up on it, but I've definitely accepted that I like, I like to work. Like, for example, one of your questions, I think that you're going to ask me based upon former podcasts is what's a good piece of journalistic material that or something that you've read or consumed recently and that's the next question yeah (laughs) okay i'll I'll dive right into it what's the best journalistic article slash piece (laughs) slash whatever you have consumed recently that is the question i've written down go ahead so last night i watched the social dilemma on netflix and i absolutely loved it even if i didn't like some of the parts where they use reenactment or not reenactment but like kind of dramatization i don't know if you've seen this yet but i i just watched it this past weekend yeah and so there's a few things I really loved about it. And part of it is this like taking something that we know and reframing it in a way that's going to hopefully make you think about your life differently. And I think it did a really good job about that. Like, I don't think I learned anything new, but I like technology and ethics as like the, the intersection of tech and ethics is like I'm highly motivated by. And so like topically, character wise, it was just awesome. But then aesthetically, they just nailed it. Like every interview was beautiful. Looking at their A-frame, especially the interviews, it's like person looking right down the barrel. It's very confessional. But then that the second cam is a it's a profile, not a three-fourths view. I, I get really annoyed with three-fourths views. And this is like a straight profile. <laughs> but coming from the fill side, not the key side. So you're always looking at the shadow on someone's face and the highlight on someone's nose. Sometimes you get a little bit of catch light in their eye on that side camera. And then they're third and fourth cameras, these wide kind of weird cameras. And I found 
every single one to be like compelling. And because that thing is that documentary is made up of pretty much nothing like interviews and, and archives. There's no A-roll. I guess the A-roll is the dramatization, but like they're not really doing much. You're just watching people speak. Yet it's beautiful. It's captivating every single bite. I just had a great edit and it's a really important topic. We can't cover it enough. But at the same time, nothing's changing. Or maybe things are changing. It's just we can't see it because it's slow. But I found that to be a great piece of journalism. And for all of those reasons, it just came together for me. Yeah, it, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, and I said to my wife, like, I feel like I did actually learn nothing from... Like, it's all stuff I had read, all stuff I knew. I just came away really fired up about all these things, I guess. Yeah, it was just the way it was put together. My wife woke up this morning and erased YouTube off every device in the house. I mean, that's impact, right? Wow. Uh, yeah, like that's awesome. I think that's the power in driving people to change and think about their lives. Think about people being at dinner, looking at their phones. I mean, it's just, it's so sad. Like we have to change and it shows the power of film, but it shows the power of good framing how you can take a simple idea that something knows, if you frame it the right way, you can have a lot of power in that message. And I think that film did that. Good shout. And then I guess the other one that dovetails is just how do you manage your work-life balance or do you even believe in it? It sounds like <laughs> it is one fluid thing for you. Any elaboration? So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's much less of a fluid thing than it used to be. I used to work seven days a week, you know, year round and didn't have a problem with that. Now that I have a nearly five-year-old child, I definitely do take weekends, especially. And I'm usually around, you know, for dinner, breakfast. During the pandemic, it's been great because I breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then past dinner, I'm pretty much off work unless there's breaking news, which does happen. But like, I'm pretty much with my family now when I'm not working, short of breaking news or maybe some deadlines. But like, I would say my work-life balance now is better than it's ever been. And I'm pretty cognizant of trying to unplug. Like last year I took a month off and I went to Estonia and we like rented this little fishing cabin and this like island in the middle of nowhere. And I turned off my phone. I didn't bring a computer. I brought books and I find that type of reset process to be really healthy. And combined with like when I leave for the weekend, I, I usually do leave my computer in my attic and I don't come back to it until Monday. Of course, unless breaking news happens and then I have to work. <laughs> and breaking news happens unfortunately eh, too lot. much yeah. Yeah. yeah but still that's good that's progress it um, is progress and then is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't related to your job i need to figure out a better way to phrase this question uh, maybe like is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job probably a few certainly the thing that is most I'm fairly geeky about is the band Fish, which has quite a culture to it. I grew up in Burlington, Vermont, you know, in the 80s and 90s. It was kind of inevitable. It was a big part of I mean, my childhood, and it continues to be, actually. So that Fish community and reading about Fish and the music, and that has nothing to do with my job, but I, I, I certainly do that. But I think I have a lot of niche interests. I really like art and drawing. I really like learning how to do things myself, like the DIY culture of YouTube, I find awesome. I'm like, I want to build a bookcase. How do I do it? Okay. I want to learn how to plant grass. How do I do it? Since having become a homeowner, I do a lot of stuff like that. Like how can I learn how to do something and do it in the suburban New York culture? The dominant thing is to pay people to do stuff. I don't like doing that. I like to do it myself. So don't know if that counts as a topic, but it's not work. 
<laughs> sure, yeah, I'll count it. And the fish thing, I didn't know, but I guess totally makes sense <laughs> looking at your background. I was thinking that when you were telling the stories at first, I'm like, I don't know. You, I guess I didn't realize how much of a Gen X vibe you have. Like, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but uh, yeah. I know. I'm I'm born in 80, so like, depending who you listen to, if that falls into millennial or not, but I definitely identify with Gen X much more because I had an analog childhood. In my mind, that should be the definition. Did you have an analog childhood or a digital childhood? If you grew up with social media and stuff, you are definitely on that side of the line. But I didn't. I didn't have the internet growing up, you know, like that wasn't a thing. So in terms of the Gen X culture and the hippies of Vermont and traveling around with the band, that almost legacy of the Grateful Dead, a lot of those people landed in Vermont and were influential to me and in my desire to travel in the first place, I think. Yeah, it all adds up. <laughs> um, and then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? This is a really tough one. I think the person who comes to mind first is someone who I know and who's living. So I think that's kind of weird, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> and I think it might be Nick Kristoff. He, more than anybody else I know, has traveled. I think he's traveled to every country in the world, actually. And not only has he traveled to every country in the world, but he's gone there looking to make impact. And, you know, he's not a very old guy. He's still relatively young. And yet he's managed to go to 220 countries and do serious reporting in most of them. So my experience of having been to whatever, 60 countries or whatever, is like pales in comparison to somebody like that. And I think your understanding of the world, like every country you go to, every new place you go to, like your world is kind of, it gets smaller and bigger at the same time, right? Like you start to see the world as a smaller place, but your understanding of it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't know anybody else who has seen the entire world and the good things and the bad things quite to the degree that he has. So I think Nick comes to mind pretty quickly. Cool. That's a good one. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? That's a tough one. I guess I would tell myself, take it easy. Don't rush. I think there's a lot of points in my life where I felt kind of impatient to get to the next thing. And I think time works itself how it did. But I think I felt impatient. I felt impatient because it was raining too much in Portland. I felt impatient in Hawaii because I thought I was there too early. I was impatient in Tahoe because I wanted to be international. I was impatient. You know, there's all these points in my life where I just wanted something bigger. And now looking back at all of those moments, they were all wonderful times in my life. And I would tell myself, smell the roses. They're there. Yeah, I've got the same problem. Always thinking of the next thing. I've gotten a little bit better about enjoying it, but... It's tough. I think it's especially tough when you're younger because you haven't done all these amazing things yet. And you will. That's the thing. I would tell myself, don't worry. You will experience amazing things. You can make an impact. You can try to make change for the good. Wait, be patient, get better at what you're doing, work harder than everybody else, and try to be a good person along the way. Like, you'll get there. Yeah, that's great advice. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I've said a couple of them on the podcast actually today. Which, uh, the, platelet, the platelet deficiency, yeah. The, the, the platelet thing is, is probably new to the internet. And fish isn't totally new, but that's a little bit new. I don't talk about it much because people stereotype about it so much. So I've been a little bit quiet about it. But the one thing that people don't know about me, how about this? I play a lot of instruments. You do? I do play a lot of instruments. When I was young, I played in orchestras and jazz bands. And when I got older, I started playing strings and eventually 
I started playing mandolin and I became a bit of an obsessive mandolin player for many, many years. And so I play a lot of music. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Good. Uh, oh, this one I think I added. What is a question you would like to ask other journalists, but maybe you don't because you don't have an excuse to? Basically, I'm fishing for a question for this podcast. <laughs> What's your most embarrassing story? <laughs> You'll get, I think that, that's, always, that's always a good one. You know, I had to interview all the Democratic presidential candidates this year, and there was like a lot of them. Everybody accepted except for Biden, and now he's the nominee. But like the rest of them I interviewed, and we did this like, we effectively did a lightning round actually, and we asked them 21 questions. And one of the questions was, what was your most embarrassing moment on the campaign trail? And it was quite funny. But I find that journalist embarrassing stories can be kind of good, especially for people who have been traveling internationally a lot. Often they're not pretty stories. Sometimes they're not, sometimes they're R-rated or they're not the nicest thing. uh, (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, I would have to think hard of what's my most embarrassing story, like embarrassing in what way? There's so many ways to embarrass yourself as a journalist. (laughs) I know. Um, That's the thing. Like there's plenty of times I've embarrassed myself by doing stupid things. Like I have a bad tendency to get SUVs stuck in places where I shouldn't have been driving. Um, (laughs) And like, I've been stuck in the Gobi desert. I've been stuck in the Nevada desert. I've been, I've been stuck all over the world in so many times. I got stuck recently in Australia in a a sugarcane field. Like I knew I shouldn't have been driving in it. And every single time, like some cop or some (laughs) In this case, a farmer owner's like, "What the hell are you doing here?" I'm like, "I just wanted to fly my drone over the sugar, you know." Like, <laughs> but uh, um, what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists, and why? Yeah, I've been thinking about this. What I would say, part of me wants to say The Wire, but my fascination with The Wire is in character development over five seasons, and like, I think that is just wonderful storytelling. And then part of me wants to say Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And just what a kick I get out of telling a wild story in vivid detail for all of the gory details that exist. And that, you know, there's this amazing stories that we've all lived. And Hunter S. Thompson was pretty vibrant about about that. Yeah. You mean more the book, I assume? Oh yeah, the book. I, okay. Yeah, um, yeah, not the no. Fuck. I don't think no. I don't think the movie involves any actual journalism. <laughs> but, no, the thing about the book, which is cool, is it's going back and forth between his kind of reflection of the failure of the '60s, which I find to be a funny topic personally, and then this adventure that he's living on. Like he is on assignment in the book. He has multiple assignments, but at the same time, he's having this drug fueled adventure, and then also there's like this subtle commentary about the time period about 1971, 1972 and the hippies kind of being this failed movement. Yeah. I need to actually read it. I, I've never actually read it. And then the last question is qualifications aside. If you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I mean, I guess like astronaut sounds pretty cool. I somehow like switch between astronaut and post office worker in Hawaii, you know, like something <laughs> where I'm like either like exploring <laughs> outer space or walking outside every day and knowing all of my neighbors in a beautiful place with perfect weather and handing out the mail. And I'm sure it's not like this because I know Hawaii, but like living a fairly peaceful and idyllic life on an island away from the problems of the world. Those are both, both those, good. Both of those sound appealing and they're very, very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Says something about two opposing forces in your personality, probably. 
Yeah, you can probably see it in the story there. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all the questions. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, that's a a thorough interview, Jake. I get interviewed from time to time, and this is more thorough than, than, (laughs) than the vast majority, I would say. Well, it's um, embarrassment of riches, I believe is the phrase. I mean, (laughs) you've done so much stuff. Like um, I'm looking at my life now and I'm like, wow, have I really done anything? (laughs) But uh, no. You're living in Brazil. You're covering a a huge story. You're still doing it. We're we're all still doing it. That's the thing. Like that's the thing. Like life can be so overwhelming with the news cycle. And like it is good to step back and just be like, we're actually still living the adventure, right? Like maybe you're parked in Brasilia right now. Maybe I'm parked in New Jersey at the moment. But that adventure of covering the news, traveling around the world, it's, it's not over. It's amazing. Yeah, getting to do reporting trips is just like the biggest privilege on the planet. I feel like I can't believe I'm allowed to do it. Um, And people pay us. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll just say, I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much. It's been a huge pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks very much, Jake. Pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jonah Kessel, Director of Cinematography for The New York Times. I'll post links to some of Jonah's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash ForeignPod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. Our show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, October 18th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.